Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Races IndyCar podcast. And today is a good one. We're going to be trying not to upset Marcus Ericsson and deliver our top 10 drivers of the season. Before we do that and explain how we came to the conclusions that we did, I want to welcome back J.R. Hildebrand, who has had a well-earned break with his family and also at one point injured your knee and had some other various things going on, but is now back to injure my pride by telling me how wrong I've got my top 10 driver ranking for the season. J.R., welcome back. How are you doing? I'm good, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm going to try not to go not not to go too hard on you here, but uh, <laughs> yeah, glad to be back on. <laughs> Well, it's great to have the the dynamic duo back, I guess. But uh, yeah, even though if it feels a bit like JR is more like Batman and I'm like Commissioner Gordon's assistant or something along those lines. But JR and I both ranked the top 10 IndyCar drivers of the year. And I've then averaged those two rankings out. And then we'll debate any anomalies or disagreements as we did earlier in the season in our kind of mid-season driver rankings, which if you've not listened to, go back because that will explain why we were talking about Marcus Ericsson because he got a bit upset that he didn't get an honourable mention in the mid-season driver rankings and then came on the podcast and told us that we had to put him in the end of season driver rankings. So stick by with the podcast, stick by for the next half an hour and you might hear Marcus Ericsson's name a couple more times. Uh, But before we go any further, uh, in honour of Marcus Ericsson, we should probably do some honourable mentions to make sure no one gets left out. And I think the two I definitely wanted to throw in the ring was was Simon Pagano and Sebastian Bourdais. I think Simon Pagano could have easily swapped in for Will Power. Just maybe Will had a few higher peaks across the course of the season than, than Simon did, even though Simon was consistent, didn't really feel like he was in contention to win any races. And Sebastian Bourdais, you all know better than anyone, JR, what he's been able to do with the with the 40 team this season. You know, obviously one of the teams that doesn't boast some of the uh, large backing that some of the other bigger teams have, and what he and Justin Taylor have been able to do this season at times has been has been really impressive and also should flag up that Scott McLaughlin was 10th in my driver ranking, but JR had Alexander Rossi at ninth. So Rossi's automatically gone into the top 10 and Scott McLaughlin's just missed out, but we'll talk about him a little bit in a minute. JR, any honorable mentions on your side that you want to pick up? No, I think all three of the guys that you mentioned, Simon, Sebastian and Scott are all absolutely, you know, in, in sort of slightly, you know, different versions of, of our rankings or whatever, uh, you know, certainly have done, uh, you know, a deserved job of, of being in the conversation. The only one that I would add would be Felix Rosenquist. He obviously missed a couple of races, um, got off to a really rough start during the year, but, but really just, just looking at the second half of the season, once he got back in the car and had a couple of races under his belt towards the end, he finished the year about as strong as anybody did in terms of sort of how he was coming back in out qualified Pato at a couple of tracks that, you know, Pato was in the top 10. So, um, I felt like that was good to see just a good, uh, a sort of a good omen for, for him personally and the arrow McLaren team going into next year. Um, you know, but, but like you said, I mean, Simon, obviously, uh, uh, uh the high point for him this year being Indy mm. in the championship standings, you know, the, we've, we've talked about the double points thing, but you know, that's, that's definitely a big part of kind of what's kept, kept his season together, held his season together. Um, you know, Sebastian, man, I mean, obviously I, I was around it a lot over the course of the year, just kind of being in the paddock and being hanging around with the team and, you know, his, his year, it was just, it's one of those things when you're up close and, and, and in person to see it, you really realize how hard it is in the IndyCar series. And, you know, the fact that 
the fact that Seb didn't have a bunch of top fives this year or qualifying performances, you know, up in the fast six is really just a testament to that because he's a guy that, you know, you stick him in, you stick him in one of the top cars with one of the top teams still to this day, he's a guy that can go out and win races, I think easily, you know? So, um, yeah, I think those are all, those are all good choices. Yeah. I think Scott, for me, Scott McLaughlin, um, just based on his lack of single seater experience, obviously, you know, people will argue that he, he's had a lot of preparation for this season and maybe more so than a normal rookie might have. And also he's gone into a Penske team that, you know, is always going to be a front running team, but just to counter that, I mean, he's come from a, a heavy touring car situation to, to IndyCar in a, you know, some might say a similar situation to, to Jimmy Johnson, even if, you know, the, obviously the supercars in Australia are obviously there's a lot more road courses on the schedule and, and Scott will pick things up a little bit quicker in that sense. But I, I don't think it's um, as far off alien as Jimmy Johnson's switch was. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think his average finish was 0.4 worse than Roman Grosjean's on the year. And obviously, you know, Roman's gone in with a smaller team and, and in a in a different scenario, but coming from a, a very experienced Formula One background as one of the drivers that many people think is one of the best not to have won a race in, in Formula One history. So there's, I think there's many ways you can sum up Scott's season, really. You can you can give it a bit of juice and you can take a bit, a bit away from it. But I think a, a really good first season. But without further ado, let's move on to number 10 that we already gave away a bit early on. Alexander Rossi had to explain that one. So he wasn't in my top 10. Um, JR, you've put him in at ninth. Uh, I guess for me, given Rossi was the hottest property on the 2019 silly season market, he's been fairly disappointing since then in terms of the standards that we hold him and his team to because you know, he's kind of, I guess it's one of those situations you get in when you're a driver at that level, people expect so much from you because you've achieved so much and it's kind of a, a chicken and the egg situation, isn't it? But yeah, I, I think easily good enough to win races, but not executing um, and and being constantly beaten by Colton has been a, a big thing for me in terms of whether he made the top and why he didn't make the top 10 in, 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 my, um, in my rankings. But you've had... I had a look at some stats and and seen some things that you like from the, especially from the second half of the season, haven't you, Jay? I'll talk a little bit about those. Yeah, I think, you know, my, my uh, process for coming up with my rankings was a little, you know, since we did a mid-season ranking was weighting the second half of the season a little bit more heavily, just in terms of what guys have done and and how that played out, obviously looking at the, at the duration of the season as well. And Alexander, from my perspective, he was actually, I think he was the second best qualifier for the second half of the year, along with Will Power to Colton. Uh, we'll talk about Colton later. He just like Colton destroyed everybody, um, you know, from a qualifying perspective for the entire season. It's actually it's like a, to a remarkable level, to be honest. But Alex was not that far off. And I think I, I, I don't have it sitting here in front of me, but I think when you include the ovals was the second best qualifier on the year, just you know, there's a bunch of guys that are kind of right in, right in this little window. So I think to, to, you know, over the course of the year, watching Alexander's season, it didn't really have those, you didn't have a lot of high points, obviously, uh, later in the season at Portland and then at Laguna, those were places that you felt like he maybe could have capitalized on and then just didn't, he was obviously out of the Laguna race right at the beginning. Um, 
you know, in essence, it's nobody, nobody else's fault. It's hard to say like, oh, that was totally his fault. Like it was a major mistake that he made. It was kind of a flukish thing that happened, but it certainly wasn't anybody else's fault um, that he was out of that race. So that, that was, that, that to me was kind of the story of Alexander's year. And to your point, for sure, we expect more from him, but at the same time, when I just started to look at all of his results and, and where he was at through, through qualifying, I guess I'm, I'm hesitant to say that I think that Andretti really had it together over the course of this year. I mean, basically he and Colton were the only ones that with any consistency ran up front, everybody else was at best all over the place. Um, and, you know, occasionally kind of in the window. So, and so for me at the end of the day, it, it, I was, I was, it was going to be, you know, it was hard pressed to not include him just based on some of those. He, he definitely did showcase some outright pace that a lot of guys that finished ahead of him in the, in the points didn't. And, and kind of, you know, when you think about, when you think about like, if this was F1 instead of IndyCar, Alexander Rossi would have been a, you know, a top five or six guy this year, just in terms of the difference between how those championships play out. So um, I felt like that was, that was worth something in the end. So in at number nine, we've got Will Power. Um, you had him at nine. I had him at 10. This is, you know, we're sort of splitting hairs here in terms of where he was at. For me, you know, a little bit of similar context to Alexander in terms of why he's not maybe further up the rankings. We just, we expect a lot from Will. We know, and and you see this year, you saw the pace from him a little bit more sporadically, I guess, than, than we're used to. You know, we're used to seeing him qualifying you know, he more front row starts than he had this year and that kind of thing. Um, he did come on a bit stronger towards the end of the season. It felt like he was more consistently running with that pace through practice and through qualifying, which, which definitely, um, you know, felt like, felt like we kind of got back into the willpower vault. He, he and the team found something that, um, clicked and, and allowed them to have that more consistent kind of peak speed, but at the same time, just a year overall that was kind of all over the place. I don't, I don't hold Indy against him at all. Like that, to me, that's totally just a team thing that he was not more competitive. But um, even outside of that, okay, he had some events that that really didn't go his way with mechanicals and that kind of thing. But um, you know, when when you see New Garden doing what New Garden's doing, um, you know that I think that that starts to play a pretty significant role in in how we look at these guys and i imagine that that your point of view is the same yeah if you take new garden out of the equation then you know power and pagino you might start to think all right they're doing a they're doing a really good job because you've got no other benchmark to to kind of judge things by obviously scott's a rookie and you know if um you know the big one for me with power is is detroit obviously that was that you know that race was was basically in the bag and that he was properly robbed of that win and that was uh you know whatever happened afterwards obviously Marcus had to work hard to win that race afterwards but for me that was a willpower win nailed on and uh, you know that doesn't change a massive amount over the course of of willpower season it was still an inconsistent season as you've described and and one that maybe doesn't live up to to what we would expect from from willpower but yeah I just I just felt like from the Penske group. Um, obviously apart from Joseph who scored a lot higher up for obvious reasons, he was the one who had a bit more peak performance and maybe a little bit more bad luck than, than perhaps Simon did. And it felt, um, it felt harsh not to have willpower in the top 10, even if it's a bad season on his behalf. Um, in a, in a similar way, I guess that it would be harsh if Rossi didn't make the top 10 based on me giving a lot of weight to Scott McLaughlin being a rookie and 
Yeah, you know, if we're talking about a top 10 drivers ranking, who's driven the best this year? Obviously, Alexander, you know, I think probably shades that and has done a better job than, than Scott McLaughlin. So it's, it's, it's an interesting thing that I always like to, to think about in these top 10s is how people judge things. And obviously me and you just coming at it from a totally different perspective and not discussing it beforehand and just putting our, you know, our rankings down on a piece of paper. It really, um, it makes you think how different the rankings can be just based on what, you, what you're actually judging by. And I think that's interesting. All right, so in at number eight, we've got Graham Rahal, one of a few drivers we actually agreed on. Uh, we both put him at number eight, so that was a, a fairly interesting one, I guess. For me, the obviously we're still waiting for Graham to end that wind spell that he's not been able to do for, for quite a few years now, and the big chance was at Indy where it seemed like he was in a really strong position on strategy and just looked like things were starting to come his way, and then the wheels literally came off. Uh, so so lucky that that Graham wasn't hurt in that crash and that 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 wasn't a much bigger incident where you know we can we can make jokes or or make light of the fact that the the wheels came off the the wind chance but you know thank lord he he, he got out of that one safely it was a, a very dangerous situation but apart from that you know he's just not had the peaks on the year it's been really consistent really 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 consistent across the year and I think if you were just you know, three or four results, which is obviously dangerous territory. Don't like to do that too much, but there's at least three or four results where he was completely taken out of, of, of races, you know, with no fault of his own while he was in the top five. And that would have put him in championship contention. He was never going to win the championship because he couldn't win any races and you're not going to win an IndyCar championship without winning a race. But still, I think uh, I think eighth on the on the leaderboard is is justified based on the the consistency he was able to to put out. What, what did you, did you see anything different from Graham or, or what was your kind of reasoning for, for putting him there? No, it just felt like a strong season from him. You know, he was more often than not out-qualified and outpaced to, uh, to Taku during the course of the season, um, you know, which is which is no small feat. Takuma still definitely got it and, you know, was showing pace throughout the course of the year. So it just seemed like a sort of determined year for Graham um, and a good job by he and the team to find something that they could work with. They were, you know, I, I don't have the stat in front of me, but I would hazard the guess that they improved the most positions on the year from qualifying to race just throughout the year. They off, they just raced really strong, which was hard to ignore um, throughout the season. So, so I'm with you. I'm with you on that ranking and, and kind of the rationale behind it. So number six and number seven, an interesting one because I had Marcus Erickson at sixth and Roman Grosjean at seventh and JR had Roman Grosjean at sixth and Marcus Erickson at seventh. So the other way around. So I guess, what did you like from, from Grosjean that, that kind of bumped you ahead of, of a two-time race winner? Because I know you, you've got your own kind of the, the way you're kind of judging these rankings. And obviously if we look at the stats, Erickson's season was better, but obviously Roman's impressed you a lot this season through anyone who's listened to the podcast. So I guess that's why you've kind of bumped him ahead a little bit there. I'm definitely a Rogro stand <laughs> um, when it comes down to it here. But uh, look, I think that there's a couple of things that stood out to me in looking at the, just looking at the season, like on paper. And this is a toss up between these things. I think they're, you know, the fact that we were, where we were both at, I think is indicative of the fact that you can kind of go either way. And it's frankly, because Roman didn't run the whole season, it's hard to kind of figure out exactly where he fits into the whole thing. Um, but that being said, it struck me that we've obviously, if we're just comparing the two of these guys, Roman driving for a team that definitely does not have the same kind of resources. He's coming in totally new to all of these places. Hasn't been anywhere before. Um, you know, so, so there's a lot that you can kind of 
there's a lot that you can excuse, I think, on on Roman's side in terms of his ability to over. He, you know, he has a lot more to overcome, basically, to produce results, I think. Um, and then looking at Marcus's, you know, there were a bunch of results that Marcus had this year that were just from start to finish on a weekend standout results. To me, Mid-Ohio actually is probably was probably his best weekend, I think. Agreed. Just because it was kind of like it was totally legit. He was there from the beginning and he was chasing Newgarden down at the end of the race. Like if that race had had two more laps, he was going to win that race by closing like a six or seven second deficit in the final stint to to get, you know, stick the thing on the top of the box. So to me, that that type of performance is not something, you know, that's like a big step, I think, to see for Marcus to be better than the other two Ganassi cars qualifying in any qualified in the top six that race um you know that that's like a that's a big time you know a, a big time result for me just looking at the rest of it particularly when you consider his teammates and we've ranked obviously Scott and and Alex like up in our top 5 so we think those guys are really good to to be in the conversation and be in the mix with those guys he's you know Marcus is in a tough spot to have to like, you know, compete, compete in our stupid rankings against Scott Dixon and, and the championship winner, Alex Blow. But, um, you know, there's also a part of it that he definitely more often than not, he was the third fastest guy among the three of those. He did definitely, he, he found ways to produce results that were better than both of them at times. He obviously won two races, but even in those two races, he came from like outside the top 15 winning those events, which requires some things to kind of fall into place and, and go your way that I think those weren't necessarily results to me that somebody else couldn't have had those same things happen and wound up in the lead and won that won the races. And so, um, to be an IndyCar race winner is not an easy thing to do. Like I, I can say that with as much confidence as anybody can, but just between the two of those guys looking at them, it just struck me that that Roman's performance over the course of the year, given the things that he was dealing with, um, were just a little bit more sort of overall impressive. And and now we'll get to see whether that's justified or not as he goes to a bigger team and is going to race the full season. I think for me, it's very simple as to why Marcus isn't with Scott Dixon, and that's the qualifying. It's it's literally the only reason. Right. His race performances were phenomenal, but so often he was coming from so far back. That he wasn't able to, you know, is it's it might be that if we actually went back lap by lap over the over the every single race this season, that Marcus Ericsson's been much better in the races than Scott Dixon, which is an amazing thing to say about any driver. If you can go back and do that, then that is pretty phenomenal. And obviously, I'm hypothesizing at this point; it might not actually be the case, but I'm sure it'd be pretty close. And the difference is, Marcus Ericsson's qualifying average is twelve point two, whereas Alex Pelos and Scott Dixon were seven point four. So Marcus is fighting against that every weekend. And in a way that makes his season even more impressive, but in a way it makes it even more disappointing because it's, it's the reason why he's not up there, you know, quite as consistently. And and maybe uh, if things had to come together a little bit quicker in the first half of the season, then it might've just been, you know, that, that bit easier for Marcus to, to make that jump, but he's still fighting a little bit with the qualifying. And I'm sure that'll be something that he'll be working on in the off season as Ganassi were last season. I think the only other thing I'd think I'd add was that I think, Maybe it's been underplayed a little bit about how valuable Marcus was to the to the Ganassi cause because 
if you speak to any of the other teams, they're like, you know, how do we fight against Ganassi? They've got three cars in the in the top 10 every week. They've got three cars in the top five every week. And it's like this whole uh, Perez-Bottas thing that's going on in, in Formula One at the moment. Who's going to be the most valuable? Who can, you know, con the other, basically the other team into playing a different strategy because you've got a... Yeah, because yeah, you've got a second and, yeah. guy in contention. And it's like, this This is like the IndyCar equivalent where Ganassi have got three cars that could be in the top five every week. And and Marcus stepping his game up this season as much as he has has really, you know, I think played into to Alex and, and Scott's hands, you know, across the course of the season. So I think that's been a really interesting thing. Agree with everything you've said about Roman. Obviously, um we we've spoken at length about how impressive he's been across the, the course of the season, especially with the you know, the I think they made a big step with the with the coin machinery, but we know how you know what what little resource they're they're working with there, and obviously what he's been able to do has obviously impressed Andretti enough to take him on, um, which is obviously uh, a good sign of how good his season was. So, yeah, that's Roman Grosjean and Marcus Ericsson tying in our rankings, but uh, yeah, I think it's a, a fair place for them to be in the ranking. I think so too. Uh, at number five, we've both agreed that Scott Dixon is. Have we agreed that Scott Dixon's the fifth best driver? That sounds ridiculous <laughs> to say. Um, what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, we've obviously gotten this wrong. Um, nobody should listen to us from here on out. Further, <laughs> further, Marcus, don't feel bad that you're sixth or seventh tied. It's for the six. end of the season. Everyone's listened to the whole season. So yeah, exactly. We're, we're, it's, nobody it's cares fine. what it's we no think at this point. Yeah, but um, yeah. Scott, least of which, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but we have him fifth. Uh, basically just because I, uh, for me, because I, you know, Scott Dixon, I think is he's, he's the goat, right? Like he's the best of this entire generation. And I think even he, he has admitted, you know, we, we don't want to have, we, we like dig through his actual quotes that he's admitted that this was not a year that, uh, lived up to his standards basically, you know, and, and that's, Partially some, some situations where, you know, he didn't get the most out of situation, you know, out of a particular scenario or race or qualifying or whatever, get the most out of the car. Um, you know, part of it's just kind of some situation, you know, some scenarios with the team, obviously he should have been, should have easily been in contention for, you know, a win or, or certainly a top five at Indianapolis. And that all went to hell at the end of the first stint there. Um, you know, there's a bunch of coulda, woulda, shouldas for the nine team, I think basically, uh, over the course of the season. And so it's not to take from my perspective, it's not to take anything away from Scott Dixon, but it's also the first time that we've seen anybody except Dario Franchitti on the same team basically do out, out, I mean, dare we say like out drive and outperform Scott Dixon over the course of the year. And so it's, it's certainly the first time that that's been a, a real conversation in a number of years. And, um, you know, I think that that's, this says, uh, I, from my perspective, ranking Scott here is says as much about Alex below, um, as it does about Scott. And, uh, you know, I, I'm sure, I'm sure he'll, he'll, prove us wrong by like ripping off winning the first three events or something of, of next season. But, um, it just felt like given, given the young talent that we've had coming in, um, the sort of outstanding performances that we saw from, from the rest of the guys that we'll end up talking about here. Uh, it was just kind of a, I mean, Scott said it was sort of a blah year and that feels about right. Like that's sort of about the way to describe Scott Dixon's season for him. Anybody else would be happy to have taken it. But uh, but for Scott, that's just kind of where it was. 
this was the most difficult person to place on in the rankings, in my opinion, um, because I, I honestly could have gone anywhere from one to five for for, for Scott, honestly, because I, I know it's been a blah year by his own, you know, admission, and he's only won one race, but riddle me this how does Scott Dixon have the same qualifying average as Alex Plow and an average finish position so the, t- the two of them Alex Plow 7.3 is his average finish o- over the course of this season Scott Dixon's was 7.4 right. so there's 0.1 of a difference in the average finish between those two drivers and we're talking about you know I, I, obviously the point about Frank Kitty is correct you know he, Dixon has been beaten for the first time since since Frank Kitty but he's not been blown away or anything like that, in, in my opinion. The, the difference is Indy. And, and this is where I, every year I get upset about why there's double points at Indy because I don't think it, you know, I, I don't think it serves any purpose personally. I, I like the fact that you get points for qualifying because going for pole at Indy is one of the most exciting things in motorsport, if not the most exciting. I absolutely love pole day Indy. And obviously, um, you know, bump day as well is is obviously, you know, phenomenal drama in, the, in exactly the same way. But in the race, everyone's trying to win the race. You don't need to give them double points to, to you know, to justify winning the Indy 500. Everyone wants to win the Indy 500, JR. You know this. There's no reason to offer double points for it. And you all you're offer, doing... Nope, you could offer half points or no points. And yeah. It wouldn't change the way that anybody approaches because it. Because yeah. the only thing you do by offering double points is make people more conservative. Because if they gamble more or go more aggressive, then they're going to lose more out in the championship. So either they're going to win the Indy 500 and they're going to risk it all anyway, or they're going to be conservative for the championship and not take the risk. And... You know, you know how it is, Jay. No, you know the drivers aren't necessarily thinking about the championship in the middle of the Indy 500. But I just don't think the double points actually does. It doesn't make anyone more motivated to win the Indy 500. So it's just a pointless exercise, and all it's done is make Scott Dixon's season look a lot worse than it was. Yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> based, true. based on nothing to do with Scott Dixon. Obviously, the the fuel issue ran out of fuel was on the pole at the at the, at the race, obviously, and, and should have done a lot better. And and you know he's he's he's, he's Point one, his average finish is point one worse than Alex Pelot and he's 68 points behind him in the championship. Uh, that's just, to me, that is just bonkers and, and not really very fair. But what I will say is it's not been uh, a, a typical Scott Dixon season where he he felt like he was in championship contention all the way through. Obviously, he can never rule him out, but it definitely wasn't anywhere near like 2020 where he was leading all the way through or, or he, he was constantly there and you felt like he could win any race and that he was you know, driving for a championship. It felt like, you know, it, it wasn't quite his year. And obviously that's how it, that's how it worked out. But anyway, that's a ranty way of saying uh, he could have been anywhere from one to five in my ranking. And I think five is the best place based on the fact that he only won one race. It wasn't a very Scott Dixon year from his perspective, but on the very strong caveat that I think it, the, obviously the Indy 500 was one of the main reasons why he wasn't first or second in the championship this year. And, and, you know, we, we could be having a very difficult, different conversation here, JR, about Scott's season just based on a race that he was on pole for, which just seems bonkers yeah. to say at the end of the year. Well, and I think that, you know, I, I value the fact that Scott was on pole at Indy really highly in terms of what it took to do that. Um, at the same time, I think if you ask Scott about the Indy 500, he'd say they deserved to have the double whack of points for how lousy it ended up going based on the fact, <laughs> based on the fact that they were on ball. So, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's reasonable enough. Um, I, we're, we're not going to end up hurting Scott's feelings by, by ranking them anywhere in particular here. I don't think, um, which brings us to, to me, the, 
although we were close together with Joseph Newgarden here, you had him ranked third. I had him ranked fourth. We've got him fourth here on the average. Um, likewise to Scott, super hard to figure out where you, you could have come, you could come up with a reason for him to be kind of anywhere here in the top, in the top five. Um, you know, I, I guess maybe I'll start with you. Um, can you explain your point of view here? You had heard a, uh, you had Herta here at fourth and Joseph at third. Okay, we'll talk about Herta in a second, but what's your perspective between the two of those guys in particular? And then talk a little bit about Joseph's season. Yeah, I think it's like you said, we're getting to the point now where you can move these guys around quite freely and all of them deserve to be there and they all deserve their own spot. I think you've maybe weighted the second half of the season quite strongly in, in your ranking, which is obviously why I heard us, you know, a little bit higher and, you know, his second half of the season was, was mega. Well, I won't get too much into him because we'll talk about him in a minute, but for me, it's just, you know, Joseph again, in a team that, that has willpower and Simon Pagino is like at least two levels above those guys. It feels like across the course of the season and the, you know, we've talked about, a, a great length on the podcast how much bad luck he's had this year I think the only thing you can really mark Joseph down for really is the is the barber crash in, in the race and that was very on Joseph Newgarden like you can't go a driving career without making a mistake um, and obviously we have to hold that against him as as, as an error uh, you know no one did that to him that was that was all his own fault and, and he knows that better than anyone he doesn't he does to tell him that but other than that his season's been you know pretty pretty phenomenal for me and uh, yeah um, Again, average average finish exactly the same as Alex Blow, seven point three. So, you know, it's 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 the again the five hundred is playing its role with the double points. It's playing its <laughs> role because Alex Blow finished second and Joseph Newgarden didn't. So, <laughs> but yeah, I think um, I don't want to go on too much about the five hundred because uh, I think you should be um, obviously being doing well in that event should be valued very highly. Obviously, but yeah, for me, Newgarden, not much to add in, in terms of what we've spoke about across the. Across the course of the season, obviously six podiums, two wins. Probably could have had another two wins. Definitely had one taken away from him um, at Road America for sure. And yeah, just f- for me, although Penske didn't have a bad first half of the season, he was the only one who looked like he was going to win a race in in that first part of the the season and in, in towards second half and really kind of led the charge and was just for, for me. I kind of, I guess I've kind of rated him quite highly based on the fact that he's like yeah for me one or two levels above two drivers I rate extremely highly personally in, in Will Power and Simon Pagano and, and Newgarden just looks on another, on, on another level and there'll be reasons for that inside the team obviously you know Simon goes a little bit of a different way with his setup and, and sometimes is a bit in no man's land in that sense and you know sometimes finds it a bit, little bit more difficult to come back from that uh, position he's in whereas uh, maybe Newgarden doesn't have that problem so much but him and Gavin Ward are just a bit of a super team aren't they the pair of them and just uh, you know year on year just deliver really strong results and we're unlucky to miss out on the championship again yeah I basically agree I mean I think that it had it not been for, and, and I, I I sort of ranked him fourth behind these couple of guys or or dropped him down a notch in the rankings for reasons that I think that if, if we had Joseph on the pod, more or less, he would agree with, which was that towards the end of the year, that last stint, you know, he and the team knew that in order to stay in contention, they needed to be qualifying in the top 10 at a bare minimum and sticking it to those guys, like being in the hunt to win races over the last three or four. And they obviously crushed that at Long Beach when it was kind of all on the line at the end of the season. But as we all knew, like that was a bit too late in the game. And I think that even for them, they just had disappointing performances um, at Portland and Laguna 
not to mention the second race at the Indy GP before that. So, you know, I think that that's, we're again, we're not saying anything that, that I don't think those guys would say themselves in terms of being a little bit disappointed with how the, the end of the season went on the whole, Joseph had an incredibly impressive year again. You know, I mean, we've, we've made no bones about talking about him as one of like two or three guys that have just been ultra impressive year after year over the last couple of seasons can show up anywhere and be in the hunt. Um, they just have sort of a gritty, like, I don't know, determination is the wrong word, but just a, a, a way of being in the mix and getting themselves there over the course of the weekend. I mean, it's, it's why I thought that Graham's season was, was impressive to watch because it had sort of hints of that same sort of vibe within that team. Like they just found, they found a way to be in the mix. What, even if it was just for like fifth or seventh or something by the end of events that otherwise after qualifying, you'd just like completely write them off. Um, you know, Joseph's able to do that every event. And then he'll also show up and stick it on pole by like half a second every once in a while. So, um, you know, a, 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 an incredibly impressive driver from my perspective. And um, it's worth maybe noting that it's a little unclear. I, you know, I don't have a sort of dog in the fight one way or the other. The fact that Penske, or I guess maybe to look at it another way, the fact that Ganassi was so good and that we had a lot of strong performances, at least from Colton, but from Colton and Alexander in terms of just pace, um, you know, one of the things that's really hard for us to understand from the outside is just where does the Chevy Honda kind of, what is the balance between the two manufacturers? There was a lot of races this year where it did definitely feel like Honda had a bit of an advantage. You know, we've talked for, for this whole generation of engine, basically that the drivability of the Honda, when you get it kind of dialed in, seems like it's better. Um, you know, so going to street circuits and going to places where, you know, in Portland and Laguna Seca, where the tire degradation is kind of massive over the course of stints in the race and that kind of thing. Um, you know, that, that maybe isn't helping guys like new garden and Pato, you know, when it, when it really comes down to it at the end. So I think just, just worth noting that there's a couple of little things like we expect Penske to be awesome everywhere, but you know, maybe they, maybe that's, maybe that car is not as, as great as, as we're saying it, you know, we think it should be and, and new garden and, and, uh, you know, Simon and, and Pat and will are doing an even better job than we think they are. So, um, you know, just worth noting that there's a few of those, a few of those variables that we don't totally understand how they fit in. It's interesting. You mentioned the drivability because we spoke with David Salters on the podcast last week from the president of HPD about the you know Honda's work on that and and their season so that's definitely worth going back to have a listen on uh also wanted to pick you up on um the, the qualifying point that you made about New Garden because that is uh one that I meant to make and didn't um yeah I think there was that run he had where he had that he had the pole in the second Detroit race then he had the pole in the next race at Road America which he did on the hard tire which was phenomenal and then the mid Ohio pole so he had the three poles in a row. And then after that, he was 12th, 20th. Then he had the third at Gateway. Then he was 18th at Portland and 17th at, at Laguna Seca. So that's you know what you were what you were talking about, the the kind of patchy qualifying, which which is odd because it came from a uh, three consecutive poles, which is you know not a normal thing in, in current IndyCar. Let's let's put it that way. 
And, and at tracks that I was expecting him to be quite good at, mm-hmm. at like half of those at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of those tracks uh, they'd had tests at as well. So, you know, Portland and and, and Laguna Seca. So, yeah, uh, that qualifying really didn't, didn't help the end of the season, did it? And I'm sure he'd be looking at that now you know, having not been in the position of being second in the championship for a lot of that running now finishing the year, second in the championship after, after Long Beach thinking, you know, what could we have done after, after those two races? So in at number three is Colton Herter, who was fourth in my ranking, but second in JR's. We've got quite a golf there, JR, considering uh, we're getting to the sharp end of things now. So what edged Herter ahead of Newgarden and O'Ward, who both finished ahead in the championship in your order? I basically on on the grounds of a couple of things. One being his qualifying performance over the course of the year. He just absolutely smoked everybody in average qualifying performance. When you look at road course, oval, street course, everything. Like when you actually look at the stats, it's ridiculous. Basically, you know, and the and at places that really matter too. Like he was just as good at places when it mattered the most. You know, at Indy, sticking it, you know, middle of the front row. Um, you know, like the consistency for how inconsistent it seemed like Andretti and Shank were over the course of the year. To have that kind of pace with that degree of frequency is just like I, I don't know. I don't. I can't think off the top of my head of the last time that somebody was that good that consistently at just extracting the pace out of the car. I mean, and like three or four times out of the year, sort of comically fast through like the first couple of like just no question he's going to stick it on the pole like after the first round of qualifying you know which you just don't it doesn't it doesn't happen like in this era of IndyCar racing so uh that's that's some of that's him some of that's uh Nathan O'Rourke they've obviously just found something in the car that he's that's that's good for him I've I've mentioned it a bunch of times over the course of the season like watching the car watching him drive the car at those places like the car just looks awesome you know it was actually this this weekend in F1 we were they were talking about um you know sort of Max and Sergio and their driving style and watching the Red Bull in particular at Coda where you've got a lot of like long duration slow corners kind of talking about the fact that the car has clearly got a bit of understeer, but something that's still react, like you can still turn the steering wheel more once you've got some understeer and it does something, you know, it doesn't just add, you know, the, that you, you, they've still got feeling in the steering wheel as they're driving through some understeer and that that's what the, it's kind of what your, you know, ideal go drive the hell out of it. Like you've got some margin to, to, to go deep and push the car, but in a way that it's not going to be snappy and, really losing a lot of time if you um exceed that margin that's how that's how colton's car you know i guess the 26 like looked a lot this year but regardless like still just impressive to be able to see that extracted over the course of the season and then he ripped off a bunch of great results at the end of the year and very few i mean outside of crashing at nashville which in terms of like my level of being impressed with him over the course of the year had little impact on how impressive he overall was that weekend. Like it was seemed like sort of a done deal that he was gonna win that race and a completely insane event otherwise. So like I'll cut him some slack on that one, that one race, basically. Um, a lot of the other events where he didn't find himself in contention at the end of the race were just completely like no fault of his own. Like he should have been in the top five, 
in multiple scenarios this year and just weren't. So um, basically taking sort of deleting the events that he had mechanical failures or fuel probe, fuel probe issue and a pit stop at mid Ohio, stuff like that. He's as consistent and as fast as anybody was on the, over the course of the year on a team that was a lot less consistent basically than uh, certainly than Ganassi was. So that's where, that's where he ranked second in my book. Yeah, the the drive shaft at Gateway as well, and also the the wheel bearing at Texas earlier in the season as well. All and the mid mid Ohio one you mentioned, all while he was in the top five. I think yeah, he qualified qualified in the top. I mean, whatever. Texas was, Texas was Texas or whatever. But in those two events, you know, he was coming from qualifying in the top like three or four. Mm. I think at both of those places. Yeah, you know? led, led the most laps at Gateway as well, and looks look at to. And I know he had the pit stop, but that was for the you know if you if you kind of if you accept what was being put forward there as to what was happening, he'd pitted first because of the drive shaft issue. And then it obviously went afterwards. We, we talked about a podcast on, on the gateway podcast to go back and listen to that. If you want to hear a little bit more detail about that, but yeah, I, I can't really, I, I can't pick any fault in what you're saying. It's obviously so difficult to place these guys, isn't it? And it's just, I think you're so right to point out some of the, the major issues Hurt has had over the course of the season that haven't been faults of his own. I think the only problem we, we really have this year is, is kind of, uh, trying to work out at what level he is extracting performance out of that Andretti setup and how sort of how behind the eight ball were Ryan Hunter, James Hinchcliffe and at times Alexander Rossi. And it's it's really difficult to know how high a level Herter is performing at this point because it doesn't seem like his teammates are on the same the same plane at the moment. And maybe Roman will give us a better idea this season as to as to where they're at and, and Rossi, I know obviously working really hard to to pick things up further, but yeah, I think the most impressive thing for me for her to was is just these weekends that you described where he was just shot out of a cannon and, you know, Nashville's the one you mentioned, St. Pete, he led 97 laps out of a hundred at that St. Pete race that we had earlier in the season. You know, Nashville was in the bag, wasn't it? Before the, the kind of mad strategy started to play out and that race just got a bit crazy. You know, Long Beach, the pole was, was there if, he maybe had gone a little bit different strategy in qualifying and maybe just binned off the, the hard tires a bit quicker. You know, it's just just little tiny things that could have made this a championship year and just just weren't quite there for him. So totally accept why you've put him second. I think for me, it was just, um, yeah, a really difficult, difficult way of trying to put, you know, some of these drivers in. And I think maybe I... I think maybe I weighted the the Nashville mistake a bit higher than the what you've done in 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 my mind, but I think uh, to to counter that, what has always impressed me most about Herter is his ability to learn from his mistakes and from from his ability to kind of assess where his weaknesses are and then work on them. You know, we've seen every single season he's done something to not reinvent himself because that's not what it's about, but just little things that he improves. His first season was was fast but inconsistent. His second season was consistent. You know, uh, this season he's worked really hard on on getting his fuel numbers and just being a little bit lighter on the tires where he can, because obviously his driving style is quite aggressive as as you've described. Just little these little things that he works on. I think him and his, his the team around him are really good at identifying where he can improve and 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 and, and do things differently. And I think you know that's going to be a a very interesting proposition. What only one more thing I'll add is that Simon Pagano, um you know, he. Uh, I spoke to him after his uh, move to Maya Shank Racing was announced, and basically, without kind of talking about Colton at all, I, I asked him, um, you know, what he was expecting the situation to be like, where you've got the, you know, those drivers 
in the driver briefing and you've got all the engineers together, you know, the, all the Andretti drivers, really strong group and, and obviously the, the engineers as well. And, and the first thing that Simon went to was really interested to learn, you know, what Colton's doing, what Colton's secrets are. So I think that tells you if there's a, you know, an IndyCar champion, an Indy 500 winner going in there thinking he can learn something. <laughs> that's, uh, that's as good a sign as any of how highly the, you know, his peers rate the performance that, that Colton's had this season as well. All right, Pato Award comes in at number two in the rankings. I had him at number two. JR, you had him at number three. Obviously, you had Colton just ahead. We're, you know, we're splitting hairs here, aren't we, uh, at this point? But I guess, I think for me, Pato's performance was, it's it, again, it's difficult to judge because Felix wasn't, you know, the the complete package for the whole season. You mentioned his performance, in, his, his improvement in performance in the second half of the season, but it didn't really give us enough to go on in the first half of the season there at all. So I think for me, um, what's impressed me so much is Pato's leadership of that team at such a young age. You know, I think so much of what they've been able to achieve is thanks to his direction and leadership and his kind of, uh, I think he really motivates the guys around him, even though sometimes you might hear him on the radio and he sounds a little bit negative or, you know, he might have a bit of a moan about how the strategy is playing out or something like that. I think behind the scenes, he really, these, these Aaron McLaren SP guys absolutely love him to pieces and they, they love working with him, you know, especially outside the car. And uh, I think he's really motivated them. I also think um, he, he's got so much out of this car where many drivers on the grid would not be able to. Um, I wrote a piece about this on the race recently, which you can go back and, and check out on our website, but basically talking about, you know, people maybe suggesting that Pato's too aggressive for F1. Um, I've kind of argued that his adaptability is what will make him great in F1 if he goes there, because what he's been able to do with this car, even though it's not necessarily, you know, he's, you remember JR when, when Pato came on the pod and and talked to us about, you know, the, the season and how difficult the car's been to drive. And also, how he doesn't necessarily like to drive it with the back end out all the time. I think, you know, it's the you can get to a position where people get carried away just watching the onboards and 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 maybe not speaking to Pato or or maybe kind of knowing what's going on behind the scenes there. But he's he's definitely not perfectly happy in that car ever, is he? Um he has to work so hard to extract the the performance from it. So I think that's what's been impressive for me is that that leadership quality and his adaptability to be able to extract what he's been able to get out of this car in in a a position where I always rate drivers very highly is when a driver can go in and and take that amount of performance out when another can't. And, you know, I'm sure Felix is going to be a lot closer to the to the to the benchmark next season. But um yeah, what, what Pato's been able to do in that car is for me just so, so impressive. Yeah. And I, you know, there's there's no fault in any of that. I don't think. I think for me, a little bit of a little bit of the same point of view that just his composure basically over the course of the year in the car, away from the car, all of that to me has been really impressive. Like, I feel like he's more, not that I had any particular like idea in my head of, you know, what he would be like or is like, or whatever. I don't, I don't know him on a personal basis basically at all, but just for him still being as young as he is and being in this position where he's de facto, you know, team leader, um, just, you know, even listening to his interviews, like how, honest and straightforward and clear sort of in his own head about where they're at, what they need to work on, what they're doing, just awareness for like his general situation. And as a team where they're at, all of those things is, you know, very mature. Um, and that's to your point, I think we definitely have to give him some points for 
just being in that position at such a young age and being able to handle it and, and embracing it basically, you know, to be in that situation where it's like, okay, I'm the guy here and I've got to figure this out and we've got to figure it out. And we got to be, you know, in a hurry to do that. And that's just our deal. Like we're here to win a championship. And, you know, if I can get a chance to go to F1, great. If not, whatever. Um, and to your point, like talking about F1, like, don't you want a guy that you could stick in Max Verstappen's car and he can handle it? You know, like that's like, it's, it's not like, I don't think, I don't look at the F1 cars or, or whatever. There, there's, there's nothing about the way that any, any driver talks about being an F1. That's like being aggressive or being, having like a, having a mentality that you can and want to drive the car on the edge and push its limits is a bad thing. So, um, I would totally agree with you from that perspective. And, um, you know, I think having him here second in the points, you know, he's obviously among the, among these top guys, he's racing for the team that is sort of least proven in terms of what they're able to bring to the table week in and week out. And so I think that on, you know, on those grounds, um, it's more than fitting that he's, up here in the top three for sure, and and I think second is is a very fair place for him. I think the 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 adaptability point is the the fact that maybe people you know people have people have wrongly criticised him for not being able to look after the tires or being too harsh on the tires, not understanding that that is the package that that that, that car is. And if he doesn't do that, then he's three seconds off the pace. So once you understand that, you can see that he is actually rather than Pato demanding an aggressive style from the car, he is adapting to that aggressive style, which means surely that that gives him extra points for going to a different formula and being able to adapt because it's not necessarily his style. I think the fundamental misunderstanding is that people think he can only drive a car that's massively, you know, wild and, and on the edge, which in actual fact is the, the opposite of, of the situation. He doesn't necessarily want the car to be that way. He wants it to be easier to, to drive and, you know, they're, they're working towards that, but it's just the aggressive setup direction of that car, isn't it? That just, it, it does make, make you know, because Pato can extract the maximum from it, people assume that's how he likes the car and it's that's just not the case. So it's just a, just maybe a bit of a misunderstanding there from some people about what's actually happening in the car. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, and it's not uncommon for teams to have a setup philosophy that that is based on, you know, having, the, having a, a few, a handful of things be a certain way and that if, you know, in this particular situation, it might be just that like when that car with that philosophy, with the philosophy that the team has about aero balance and, you know, roll centers and whatever it is um, that they think is sort of best if they can get it to work. It might just be that once it gets a little bit of under, unlike say the Andretti car, that's maybe designed to be a bit more stable, you know, they've uh, at uh Arrow McLaren, if they start getting understeer in it, they just don't have as many tools to fix that. Whereas, you know, and another, so that's, that's a bit of what we're talking about here, just for the sake of the listeners. And, um, you know, it's, it'll be interesting to see how all of that continues to evolve over the off season into next year, I think. So number one, a huge shock, I'm sure to everybody we've got, we both ranked Alex below here at number one. And, uh, there's, there's no way that I don't think that anybody could fault us for that. The he had a super impressive season. He had a season where coming straight into a new team, won the first race, had an just a you know, for me, a, a an inspired outlook and attitude the entire year. Uh, felt like he always had a little bit of 
extra bandwidth to deal with stuff. You know, he was not always the fastest guy on track at any particular time, but just had his eyes open, like didn't get caught off guard by anything over the course of the season was in essence, like mistake free in terms of like major things that, you know, substantially impacted his events, um, collected the points that they were there whenever they were, they were available and had a handful of standout performances. And then when it, you know, when the chips were down later in the year, when, you know, he had an engine failure, he had some other things starting to happen. He had a couple of events that they didn't qualify that well for gateway got taken out at gateway along with Scott Dixon. Um, you, 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 you internally within those teams as a driver, those are situations where you can easily start to just the attitude and the vibe can start to change when that kind of thing happens. And, um, they just, he just bounced back every time, you know, and, and went to Portland and went one, one stuck it on the pole, you know, went and won the race. There's, and it just, it felt there was an ease with which he did all of these things over the course of the year to me, that is more than more than the actual results themselves is why he's my number one guy over the course of the year, because it just felt there, it felt to some degree, like not effortless, but just that this was not a super hard thing to go do, you know, like that there could have been five more races at the end of the season and he still would have won the championship, you know, like it's not a lot of things could have been different and he still would have been there. And, um, man, it was just, it was impressive to watch. I really enjoyed speaking to, I mentioned before we did the podcast last week with David Salters at HPD and I asked him what he found so impressive about Alex Blur. Cause we've got this great situation in IndyCar where obviously Honda and Chevrolet have the simulators. So someone like David at HPD gets to see all of the Honda drivers in the simulator over the course of a season. So he's almost one of the best placed people to talk about the, the kind of level of the, the drivers in the simulator at, at the moment. And I think the, the thing that impressed him so much, he talked about, you can listen to on the, on the podcast uh, from, from last week was the, the, the extra bandwidth that Alex has that, that, that these kind of top drivers have the extra kind of brain room, let's call it or something, uh, where you're just able to, to be thinking about different things, you know, the, the kind of natural part of driving the car and reacting to what the car's doing and actually extracting the maximum out of the car takes very little brain bandwidth from these guys and they're thinking. And do you know what the perfect example, I wrote it down on, on my notepad actually yesterday while watching the 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 race at, at Cote yesterday, the, the Formula One race and, and just watching Max Verstappen after the first pit stop. And the, the radio came over and he'd done his first pit stop and he'd, whilst, you know, in a really critical phase of taking the time out of the tyre in that first part after his first pit stop to make sure that he was kind of eating into Lewis Hamilton's advantage, he was thinking about what Hamilton was doing and telling the team what they should be doing with Sergio Perez to make his life easier. And he just computed all this in his head in, in basically a, a few seconds and kind of worked out what was happening and what he needed to win the race, in, including the strategy of somebody else to help him out. And it's just this kind of extra kind of, the, it's just, it's it's like a compartment in the brain where they've just got so much more ability to be thinking about other things and, and doing other things. And I think that was really cool from, from David uh, Salter to explain that last week on the pod. And yeah, I, I've got nothing um, to argue with from, from your points there, I think. You know the, the 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 performance year on year. You know coming from Dale Coyne and and basically winning the championship in your second season is obviously a you know a phenomenal phenomenal result. 
and yeah, he's just impressed everyone all year. And as you said, I think, you know, there was two or three results that really went against him. <laughs> the championship could have been wrapped up sooner um, had, that, had that not been the case. And, and some of the ones you mentioned, especially with the engine trouble that he had over the course of the year, which in a way was like a dark cloud over the season. And you talked about these in- incidents potentially, uh, I can't remember the exact phrase he used, but maybe like turning the mentality of the team in, into, into a negative, let's say. You know, they've had that from the start of the season in one way, knowing that they, they were an engine down after, you know, pre-season testing. So they were going into the season with one less engine than everybody else. They they must have known at that point they were going to need to take a, a six-place grid penalty at some point. And obviously that turned into a, they had a nine-place grid penalty at Gateway as well. And obviously one of those errors was Alex's fault when he crashed in Indianapolis qualifying. But, you know, the other the other two or three that happened, you know, in testing and, and in races were definitely not his fault. And yeah, that, that really put him up against it. And, and that's another area where maybe what you were talking about, the the kind of negative aspect of the team could have turned. And Alex has been perfect at, at keeping that up, bringing the team donuts and things like that, you know, just silly little things to to keep the morale up and, and keep them pointing in the right direction. And, you know, I think if you want a, a kind of idea of how that works, I think the the post the the post gateway interview that he did, where obviously he's been taken out of the race, it looked like his championship was falling apart, and and it was going to be the end of it. And he was just you know kind of like, well, yeah, you know, this kind of stuff happens. Like we move on to the next race, and I think people were expecting him to to shout and scream uh, and be angry at Renus VK for, for for his role in in the incident. But you know, there was no finger pointing. There was no you know, kind of moaning about anybody else. It was, I've, you know, kind of got faith in this team and 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 we're going to go out and do it anyway kind of thing. And, you know, I think that kind of shows that mentality perfectly. I think it's obvious when when we see him on track, what what he's able to do. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been nice to see his kind of studious and more kind of sensible, not sensible, that's that's not a fair word. Um, his, his more kind of straightforward driving style where the car's much more, um, it looks much more manageable from inside the cockpit. It doesn't look like he's doing as much correcting or anything. And um, it's been nice to see that kind of counter style to some of the other drivers who are obviously a lot more aggressive. That's been really interesting to watch as well. Um, but yeah, Jay, I don't know if you've got any more points to make about Polo, but I think, you know, it's uh, we, we've had him on the podcast and we've, we've done quite a few interviews and uh, quite a few different podcasts about his results now. And I think we're both just uh, majorly impressed by what we've seen in the second season and, and his first at Ganassi as well. Yeah. And I think that, you know, the only th- other thing that I would add is just, you know, it make it, it, uh, it makes sense to me that he and Scott Dixon and Marcus Erickson all have managed to work together and, and be so strong together this year, because it just, I mean, even Portland was a good example of just the fact that, I mean, it, when we talk about that, about that little bit of extra bandwidth, you know, seeing that sort of, uh, exemplified on track somewhere, the fact that Alex managed to not get taken out by Scott Dixon at the at beginning of that race is as much Alex's like awareness for all everything that was going on and being able to like have your peripheral vision and and glance in your mirror and kind of you know be going into the first corner in the lead all the way on the ins or whatever one up from the inside because Scott was sort of down below him but just to see all of this stuff happening and you, know, you you look at those situations from the outside and kind of think like, oh man, he was lucky just not to get plowed by somebody there in all of that mess. But Alex is, there's like the guys that have that ability are taking all of this stuff in. They're probably like, I bet you his eyes are like soft and not actually 
looking at one thing in particular, you're just kind of taking in these little tiny bits of information and making like these minuscule movements of the steering wheel and letting off the brake and doing these things, um, just, just completely in the moment, taking it all in to not get taken out. And they're the types of things that you see from Scott Dixon and Joseph Newgarden and, and those guys that we're used to seeing up at the front that just somehow they managed to get in these like otherwise destructive situations and just the dust settles and they're driving out the other side and their, their car's fine, you know? And, um, and so I think that that's, it makes sense to me. You can, you can imagine the two of those guys. And it was funny cause they were both in the PNC bank cars. I think that race just going through the first corner and then both just being like, God damn it. But then basically being fine and just like, okay, whatever, we're going to get stuck at the back. We're both going to pit. We're both going to end up on the podium when this whole thing's all said and done, you know, and it's just, uh, there's not that many drivers that have that type of just, it's not, it's not just like a never say die attitude. Cause for some guys, it is like a degree of determination that comes into it there that you're like, no, screw this. Like I'm going back to the front. I think for those guys, it's a little bit more just acceptance of whatever's happening. And then they just get on with it. And, and that's to me, what Alex did all season, you know, at long beach, he ends up fourth or whatever. You basically didn't, like he was he was a non-factor throughout the race in terms of what was going on but then he's there and forth at the end and you're just kind of like he's not gonna screw this up like he's he's probably just like like maybe he's jabbering on the radio with the guys about like what they're gonna do for dinner or something you know like it i chicken seemed, for sure yeah well yeah i guess there's probably not much of a conversation <laughs> there, but um you you can just tell sometimes with guys and and he definitely he definitely showed us that he was one of those guys this year well, over the course of the top five drivers, we, we've talked about all of them having a, a really large amount of adversity over the course of the season. So that what you've just described there is vital to making an IndyCar championship work. If you've not got that attitude and you're not able to you know, consistently pick yourself back up and, and then deliver a good result the next weekend after something bad's happened to you, then you're not going to win the championship. So I think you've put that perfectly. And, and I think that's really well reflected across the top five drivers in in our rankings. So hopefully you've enjoyed that, guys, listening. And please message us via any means that you want to, to let us know whether you agreed with the rankings or even better if you disagreed so we can have an argument about it because that's, uh, that's one of the great things about motorsport. We all have our own opinions and we can all... Uh, you know, very uh, peacefully and respectfully argue about them. So that's what we're going to do. If you want to message us in and let us know what you thought, please let us know. JR and I had a good back and two over WhatsApp about our rankings and who had got it right and who had got it wrong. So we'll do the same with you guys. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Don't forget, we'll be back over the course of the off season to talk about the latest news, stories, interviews and things like that in IndyCar Paddock. And we'll catch you then. Mm-hmm.